0: Thank you very much. You can be seated. we got a lot to cover, so not a whole lot of time to to play around. If you turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, I want to teach us some things uh, in the weeknight. Let me give you a couple promises. Number one, um, I will stretch your mind. Number one, that's number one. Number two, that we all need to change something. Can we all? If if you're here tonight and you can't admit that, then um, please uh, exit quietly. Um, that's, uh, if you're here and you've got God all figured out, please leave. Okay, because uh, you're wrong. All right, that, that, that's that's number that's number two. Number three, I will honor your time. I'm going to honor your time. I know it's a weeknight, so um, we're going to we're going to teach and we're going to do some things. We got to be springs and not bricks. I, I, I want to I open up um, just by saying thank you to this church. Um, let, me, let me give some honor where honor's due. I, I'm going to tell you this, and I don't say this everywhere I go because I only say it if I mean it. I never say anything bad. If, if, I, if I don't say anything at all, it's just I don't say anything at all. But I, but I, I, I truly mean this. I travel the world, and um, in traveling the world, you become an expert on pastors. You become You, you just do because you see all of them and how they operate. And I can say with no sense of exaggeration at all, you'd have one of the top five pastors I know in the whole world right here. You, and, mm. there's, only, there's only three pastors in the world, maybe four, that I would tell my stuff to, and, and he would be one of them. And, and, and you know you're never going to be judged. He'll just help you work through whatever it is. And that's what a pastor is. And um, he's a great leader, and you guys got a great staff here. Everything about this church is awesome. Uh, Everything about it. And uh, I appreciate it so much. Uh, I want to also thank you for your generosity. Um, I I live by faith, completely by faith. I get no salary from anywhere. So at some point tonight, um, they're going to ask you to to give a love offering or something. And uh, when that happens, that's the only way I live. And we also live by our resource table. I've had the awesome opportunity to be mentored by a rabbi for the last eight years and running. And so we put a lot of that stuff back there, and you can avail yourself of that to it. Let me tell you what we use that for. In a church this size, uh, the love offering is going to cover the week's expenses. It just is, the numbers, it just is, okay? Um, and so, what we use what we use the resource table for is we take the product we take the profit from that and we use it to bless people who can't afford it. And um, last time I was here, I used the profit and put it aside for an HIV/AIDS orphanage and clinic in Africa. And partly because of your generosity, we were able to give seventeen thousand U.S. U.S. dollars U.S. dollars seventeen thousand U.S. dollars. That is a difference now. Um, <laughs> um, you guys don't may, You guys don't pay attention attention to that stuff. I do. It's so, um, $17,000 to, to the orphanage. And that's a large part. This is all that was. That was you letting me put something in your hands that would have changed the way you looked at God forever. Yeah. And you put something in our hands that help us bless people who can't do it. And so I think it's a pretty good trade. And, um, and so during the breaks tonight, it'll be out there. We've got four brand new pieces of uh, product back there that would not have been here last time. Um, the main one that we have is a 10-disc series on the Ten Commandments, and so you'll want to pick that up. Um, we also have um, two different DVD series. There are four DVDs a piece. Those are actually things that you can put in your DVD player at home. Um, unless you have a DVD player in your car, it won't work in your car. But it will work at home. I I have had some people write me and go, this won't work in my car. Well, that's because it's a CD player. So um, it'll work in your DVD player at home. And then we also have some new stuff out there. So you just want to pick that stuff up because here's all that is. That's you putting something into my hands that let me bless people who can't bless themselves. And that's you putting something in your life that will change the way you look at God forever. All right? So, I want to talk to you tonight about the Ten Commandments. I'm going to talk to you about it all the way through the week, um, even on Sunday, and, and we're going to, we're going to uh, change our lives. But we have to make one ground rule really quick, and that is this that in order to study God and in order for the church, I believe, to get its credibility back, all of us have to lose our addiction to being right. Okay? We have to lose, we're all addicted to being right. Um, We could start our own 12-step program. Hi, my name is Shane, and I am an addict, okay? And I am an addict to being right, and you are an addict to being right. And the worst addicts to being right in the whole world are white Pentecostals, okay? So most of you look white, and uh, most of you look Pentecostal, all right? From the judging by how you just started this whole thing, everybody pray in the Spirit for two minutes, that's pretty good, okay? That means you're white, it means you're Pentecostal, which means we are the worst in the world at thinking we have God figured out. We're the worst in the world, and that is ridiculous, God does not expect us to have him figured out. As a matter of fact, when you read Jesus, the ones who ticked, Jesus runs into people who were caught in the act of adultery. He runs into thieves on crosses. He runs into prostitutes in the middle of the night, and he's forgiving them. The people who ticked Jesus off were the ones who thought they had it all figured out, that they were in and everyone else is out okay like one place he goes into a place in galilee and that place in galilee was known for its orthodoxy what they did is they took the torah and then they made it harder and so they tried to they tried to live um even harder and because they were keeping the torah better than everybody else they thought they were saved they actually called themselves the remnant the chosen ones or the elect we would never do that would we and so they thought they were in and everybody else was out. They were going to heaven and everyone else was going to hell. That's what they thought. So um, Jesus shows up and they said, Rabbi, are only a few going to be saved? And of course they mean them, right? So basically what they were, they were doing, they were trapping Jesus into agreeing with them. They said, Jesus, hey, you tell us, are only a few going to be saved? And Jesus gets so ticked. He says this, he says, listen to me. My marriage table, my marriage table Many will come from the north, east, south, and west, but you who actually think you're in will be the one shut out because you thought you were better than other people. Um, One of the things that the rabbi said, which I love, they said, if we spent two hours tonight talking about God, which we're going to spend about an hour and a half, we spent two hours tonight talking about God, if 95% of what we said was wrong, God would still be pleased just because we gave a night to talk about him. All right? God does not expect you to get it right. God does not expect you to get it right. Let me show you why. Let's be gods for a second, okay? All right. So I'm the chairman of the Council of the Gods, and you are gods. okay? So for sake of our example, we're going to be gods for a second. So I convene a meeting of the Council of the Gods, and I move that because we're bored with each other, we're going to create something. OK, so I moved to create something and you agree with me. We're going to create something. OK, so we choose to create people and we use this whiteboard as our masterpiece canvas. OK, so we, we're, we're, we're going to create people. And uh, I want to make sure this says whiteboard marker and not permanent. Yep. Whiteboard marker. Very good. All right. So we create people. All right. All right, and we'll call them Joe and Jane. Now, now, for the sake of time, for the sake of time tonight, um, it, let's say that we do all the things we can do to make them perfect, okay? So we make them perfect in our sight, and let's say that they have all the mental and physical capacities that we do to think. All right, So they're, they're perfect in every just like we would want them. And, and they, they have all the capacities that we have. We make them in our image and in our likeness. We, we do everything we can do to make Joe and Jane perfect in our sight. And we do that. And just for the sake of example, we say that that is done. And we look back and we say, it is good. It is finished. And we look back, what is still the problem with Joe and Jane. There's still a problem with them. And the problem is that they're stuck on that board. Their world is limited to what they can perceive in two dimensions. So simple tasks. Like if I was to whisper in Joe's ear, Joe, in my world, I'm God. And in my world, I can extend my arm out. Joe goes, that is unbelievable. (laughs) Joe can't fathom a way that an arm can extend out. Why? Because he is stuck in two dimensions. Simple things. If I whisper in Joe's ear, Joe, Jane is gorgeous. She's got nice curves. Joe looks over and says, she's just a line. I don't understand what you mean. Why? Because he's stuck in two dimensions. If I wrote Joe a book and I wanted to write Joe a book about me and I say things like, Joe, my ways are so high above your ways, you can't Fathom it. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great are my ways above your ways. Scientists tell us that the furthest star they know of is 12.3 billion light years away. That is a long way above us. If I, if I wrote Joe a book and said, Joe, my ways are so high above your ways you can't understand it. Joe can't fathom that in his world I can go behind him and in front of him. I can be above him and beside him all at the same time. He can't understand that. Why? Because he's stuck in two dimensions. If I wanted to get Joe and Jane's attention, so I took my hand and I said, let's get their attention. I take my hand and I stick it through their world. What are they going to see? They're going to see my hand in two dimensions. What does my hand look like in two dimensions? It's flat, number one. Number two, it would be five dots coming through their world at differing times, followed by a series of dashes. And so Joe says, Jane, did you see that? That's five dots followed by a series of dashes. And Jane says, no, 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 I don't think so. I think it was bigger than that. I think that was the hand of shame. he says, man, are you smoking something? <laughs> what, if I, what if I grabbed Doug's ring and I took his ring and I stuck it through their world? What would they see? They would see a ring, a ring in, in two dimensions, which would just be one dot that separates into two dots. And then those two dots go around like this and then come back together as one. And then it disappears. And he says, did you see that? That was roughly 20 dots that went like this. And and she goes, no, 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 that was Doug's ring. That was Doug's ring. She, he says, man, are you so what if, I, what if I put my face this close to their world? And she goes, do you smell that? That smells like curry chicken. <laughs> I can feel something. And Joe goes, no, 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 that's the face of Shane. I can sense his presence who's right and who's wrong? None of them. It takes faith to believe it all. Here's the problem with two dimensions. I'm not trying to trick anybody. In two dimensions, what is that? It's a circle, right? In two dimensions, what is that? It's a rectangle. In two dimensions, can that ever be that? No. And in two dimensions, can that ever be that? No, it either is a circle or a a rectangle. In two dimensions, it's got to be a circle or it's got to be a rectangle. Is there ever enough dimensions to make a circle a rectangle? Of course, all you need is three dimensions. That's a circle, that's a rectangle. All you need is an axis to turn it on. That's how simple it is to make a circle a rectangle. But in their world, it can never be. It can never be. Now, if my memory serves you right, Pastor Mike's a physics guy. He's a physicist, so he would understand this better th- than me. But as I understand it, the mathematicians call a dimension a degree of freedom. A degree of freedom. Here's what I mean. If this is a puzzle space, and this is the piece that's supposed to go in the puzzle space, can you ever squeeze that into that in two dimensions? No, you can't turn it enough ways to do it. In order to do that, you have to pick it up and move it over the top and put it down. One of the two pieces has to be three-dimensional. You have to have a degree of freedom in order to do that. Now, now let me, you say, Shane, what is your point? My point is this, is that we are four-dimensional people. We live in three space dimensions and one time dimension. Okay, We can only be at one place at one time, at one moment. That's us. That's our limitations. That's our world. We are, we are stuck to perceiving things that only exist right in front of us. Something we can see. Something we can touch, feel. We exist in three, time, three space dimensions and one time dimensions. We are four dimensional. These are the complications that exist when a four dimensional person tries to communicate with a two dimensional one. These are the complications that exist. They will never understand me. I would simply be pleased with the fact that if they even noticed. I would simply be pleased with the fact that they were giving it a go. Someone stuck in two dimensions has no hope of understanding a four-dimensional person. No chance of it at all. All they can know is what I tell them, and then, and then even what I tell them is limited to their way to understand things. That is is the complications that exist when a four-dimensional person tries to communicate with a two-dimensional one. Can you imagine the complications that exist when an infinitely dimensional God tries to communicate to four-dimensional people? Can you imagine the complications that exist with all this? Can can you imagine it? Can can you imagine the intricacies? That's why God just kind of covers his bases. He says, listen, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so great are my ways above your ways. You can't get your head around me. In other words, at one place in Deuteronomy, I'm going to talk about this later, he basically says this, if you can imagine it, it ain't me. <laughs> that that, that in, in other words, I'm so much bigger than you that if you take your imagination to its furthest bounds, something as broad as your imagination, if you take that to its furthest bounds, whatever's there, I'm bigger than that. I'm bigger than that. And, and, and not only am I bigger than that, every aspect of me is bigger than that. So if you just take my love... How wide and how deep and how broad and how, how great is the love of God. Like you can't even get your head around it. And so before we go any further, God God is infinitely big. And we're going to talk about this when we talk about the second commandment. God is infinitely big. He's also infinitely small. He's, infin- he's infinitely small. Let, let, me, let me share something with you that, that I learned um, recently. Do you guys know what the butterfly effect is? It's not the scary movie. Not that. Uh, you, the butterfly effect, was the, the, the phrase was coined by a man um, who was an MIT physicist in 1960. So this was a guy really, really smarter than us. And, and he, was, uh, he was a physicist for MIT in the 1960s. And, and he wanted to come up with a way to better predict weather patterns with greater accuracy. So he was working with an algorithm on a computer program. And this was his algorithm, Point .504162. This was his variable that he was using to, to, to do wind patterns in order to greater predict meteorological phenomena, okay? And so one day, he, he would, what he'd do is he'd come in and he'd type in that algorithm, and then he'd let the computer run for a while to see what would happen, all right? And one day, he came in, and, and he, he, was, he was in a hurry, and this is what he typed in by accident. So he just left off the 162, He typed in .504, and he let the computer run, and he went off and did his own thing. Two hours later, he came back, and the effects of leaving off the 162 here, the effects of that caused catastrophic weather events 150 miles away. And it was just a mistake. So on the computer model, he left off 162 hundred thousandths of a percentage point and it caused catastrophic effects 150 miles away. They asked him, they said, what is the equivalent in wind of that? He said, the, the equivalent of wind of that is the puff of air that is caused by a butterfly's wing. So, so he said, theoretically, if a butterfly flutters in the wrong direction at the wrong time, it can cause catastrophic events 150 miles away. And he coined the phrase in the scientific community, the butterfly effect, the butterfly effect. You say, Shane, what in the world are you talking about? What I'm talking about is this, is that, with it, that God is so big, he has his head around every puff of air that comes out of a butterfly's wing a hundred miles from here in order to protect you. God is huge. And we just need to come to the place of humility, come to a, a big place of humility that just says, I, I am not God, and any attempt by me to put my box of God around people just is not right. W- one other thing before we get into the Ten Commandments itself, and that is, I, w- I want to speak to you about that really quick, the humility factor, that one of, the, one of the tests of ministry in the first century was something called the disposition of the Messiah, The disposition of the Messiah. Now, in English, we write like this. Now, if some of you have seen this before, just indulge me and listen again. But in English, we write like this. A plus B plus C equals D. All right, so if D is our main point, we make three statements and we end up at D. Hebrew people don't write that way. They're not allowed to. When they do it, they say A plus B plus C equals D equals C plus B plus A, all right? It's called reverse concentric symmetry, okay? So, when a Hebrew person writes, they write where there's connecting points at the end, and it backs up into a middle point, okay? What does that look like? A menorah, exactly. You guys know where the theology of the menorah came from? It's from Isaiah chapter 11. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on me. The spirit of wisdom understanding counsel power knowledge and the fear of the lord see so you could see where a later writer said this the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom All right it, it, so these are the, let's, to use our term, these are the anointings that can come on somebody um, from, from the Lord. And so, the, as you can see, there are six, but the center one, which is the main point, the center candle does not, the rest of this does not light without the center one. And the center candle is called the servant, That every anointing you'll ever get from the Lord does not light up properly unless it's done from the heart of humility and the heart of a servant. That that in fact, that as much as we learn this week, we're wrong. That that no matter what we learn this week, it's not in the being right and it's not in the being wrong. It's actually in the questions that it puts in our lives to make us change our lives to be more godly. It, it's actually the fruit that it might bear. It, it's, actually, it's actually whatever we talk about this week. Listen, if, if you're here this week and you just gain a bunch of knowledge, that is helpful, but it misses the point. If what, if what we are going to do this week, this, this, is how, this is how I'll know if what we did this week wins, is this. Is that is that, will, will the girl at KFC know that you're saved even when she messes up your order? It, it's, it's this, it's when you're on your way home from work and you stop by the grocery store to pick up three things and you go in there and pick up three things and someone jumps in front of you in line with 50 things, are you saved then? It's 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 when you stop by the grocery store and and you um and and you end up in the line with the slowest cashier in the entire store. It's are you saved then? It's 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 it's, it's this. It's wives. It's does your husbands know you're saved even when he leaves his underwear on the floor? <laughs> do, wives, do your husbands do, do your do you do, husbands? do your wives know you're saved? even when they make a decision that disappoints you. It's, it's what are we doing to live the life of a servant? What are we doing to extract the anointings of the Lord in order to live it in such a way that we are, in fact, a servant, that Jesus is the center point of our whole life? Jesus is the center point of our whole life. Now, with that being said, let's look at Exodus chapter 20. Now, what I'm going to share from now till break, I have shared here three years ago in a invitation-only leaders meeting. So if you were a part of that meeting, indulge me for the next few minutes because I need to introduce the Ten Commandments before we actually start talking about them. And there's no way for me to introduce it without putting it in its proper context. So this is how Exodus 20 starts. It says something like this, and the Lord spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Have no other gods before me. I am the Lord. So the Lord spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. I want to spend probably the rest of the night on that one sentence. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. And I want to ask a couple of questions about this. And the first question I want to ask is this, is how would the people in the first century, in the first, well, the, not the first century, how would the people that were listening to this, how would they have heard it? Who were they? What was their background What what would they, how would they have heard this? What sequence of events led up to this incredible event? I could tell you this, that the people at the bottom of that mountain, they were slaves for 430 years. 430 years of heritage of slavery. 430 years of your opinion not mattering. 430 years of getting up every day at sunup and making bricks. Hopefully enough bricks to keep yourself from getting killed. You get up every day, you make bricks. You go to bed. You get up every day, you make bricks. Seven days a week, 12 hours a day, 365 days a year. You did that day in and day out. You were treated with no dignity. You you, you were a slave. You were less than human. If, if a Roman, I mean not a Roman, if, a, uh, if an Egyptian soldier wanted your wife, they just came in and raped her. There was no repercussions whatsoever. No thought to your dignity. No thought to the fact that you were even human. You were less than human. If they wanted something of yours, they just took it. If they wanted to kill you, they killed you. No repercussion. Remember Moses killed, Moses got in trouble because he killed an Egyptian, not because he killed a Hebrew. These people, they had no human rights. So, so when you think of the Ten Commandments as a whole, I want you to think of it in terms of a group of slaves learning, there's a couple ways I want you to think about it. First is, as a group of slaves learning how to be human again. God is trying to teach a group of people, and all they knew was slavery, this is how you be human. This is how you be human. He, he's also trying to create a culture that's going to have his way to live so the whole world would look at what they have and want it. So he's trying to create the world's best culture. He's trying to, create a, he's trying to teach a group of slaves, 430 years of slavery, he's trying to teach them this is how you be human. It, it's, also, it's also a wedding proposal. I'm going to talk to you about that here in a second. It's also a wedding proposal. It's God proposing marriage to a group of people. Now, now, let's look at it from an overview. Think about it. Think about it as a group of slaves. They've been slaves for 430 years. 430 years, that's all they knew. And, And here's what they hear. Thou shalt not kill. Is any of them going, oh, no, that's the law? No. Everyone's going, wait a minute. In our new culture, you can't kill me just because you're stronger than me? Wait a minute. In our new culture, you mean that he has to respect the basic dignity as a human being God gave me? That he has to actually respect the image of God in me? That that's how we're going to do this thing? That is fantastic. That, that wait a minute, wait a minute. There, there's not going to be any thinking because you realize murder is the light sin. The heavy sin is actually believing someone's worth less than you. The, the, the heavy sin is a belief that says someone else isn't worth as much as you are. That's the heavy sin. See, so he says, wait a minute, our new culture, we're going to respect the basic dignity. Can you imagine? Thou shalt not steal. No one's thinking that's the law. We're being put under bondage. No, no, no. They just got out of bondage. God's not trying to, to make them. Listen, God is not trying to make you good. God is trying to make you free. God's not trying to make you good. Good compared to who? Him? No way. Come on. God's not trying to make you good. God is trying to make you free. He's trying to free slaves. He's trying to free people that all they knew was bondage and slavery. He's trying to free them to be human again. Thou shalt not steal. No one's thinking, hey, that's the law. Everyone's thinking, wait a minute. In our new culture, you can't take things from me just because you can that is awesome. Can you imagine all you knew was 430 years of slavery, and you hear, "Thou shalt take a day off." Can you imagine that? Wait minute, we haven't had a day off in 430 years." And he's actually commanding us to have a day where we remind ourselves that our worth doesn't come from how many bricks we make? That is fantastic. Thou shalt not lie. In other words, in our new culture, we have to actually have integrity in our business dealings? I mean, if you know anything about sociology, you know that a culture that ran its system like that, once once a culture or a country becomes rampant with murder and theft and and corruption and business dealings, the whole economy goes down the tube because no one wants to do business with you. So God is not trying to make people good. He's trying to make people free. But for the rest of this first session, I want to talk to you about a wedding proposal. This whole thing, the, the Hebrew people call it, they don't call it the Ten Commandments, they call it a ten-word ketubah, okay? Now, in, in, every, in every Hebrew wedding, there was five steps. Let me give you the five steps. Okay. The five steps were lakah, segula, mikvah, ketubah, and hupa. all right? So I want you guys, let's practice saying those words, okay, while everybody's taking their notes, and, um, and, and I want us to practice saying those words with some, um, who's your, the All Blacks, the, the all, some All Blacks gusto, okay, all right, some, some real sort of umph, all right, everybody say Laka, Laka. Segula, Mikva, katuba, Hoopa. all right, everybody say Hupa, Hoopa, Iba, Eba, Eba, <laughs> uh, all right, laka, segula, mikvah, Ketubah, hupa. All right. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna explain this in the natural, and then I'm gonna show it to you in the Bible. All right. I'm gonna explain it in the natural, then show it to you in the Bible, and bring this thing together, hopefully to to introduce the Ten Commandments. Well, laka. Let's say Allie and I were dating, and she's out of my league, but it doesn't matter. So it's just hypothetical. So Allie and I are dating. And and there comes a point where we cross the threshold of serious, all right? There's a bit of chemistry going on between us. People are starting to ask her, hey, how serious is this getting? Okay, this would have happened all the time, all right? Now, once it crosses a certain point, Allie would be longing to hear one word from me. And that word is laka. She'd be longing to hear laka from me. So, so one night, um, we're, we're out on a date, and, um, and Allie, we're, I don't know, we're down at the pizza place, and she bites into a piece of sausage just perfect, and that sausage fat and juice goes all over her. <laughs> and I look across that table, and I think, I want to spend the rest of my life with that woman. <laughs> Any woman that can bite into a piece of sausage like that, we, uh yeah. So I take her home, and there's a moment on the porch, and she's still got a little bit of it right there on her face, and I say to her, Allie, la well... On the outside, she acts excited, but on the inside, she's a hundred times more excited. On, on the outside, she's, she hugs me, and there's a moment there, but on the inside, she's just clapping and going nuts, and on the inside, she's just, oh my God, oh my God, he said la ca, he said la ca. So she goes in and she calls her three best friends and she's clapping. He said, Locotomy. He said, Locotomy. Oh, my God. He said, Locotomy. Laca means I want to make you my own. I want to make you my own. Look at Exodus chapter 6. The, the book of Exodus Is just one big giant marriage proposal between God and a group of slaves. Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 says something like this. He's talking about his accolades. And he, says, he says, I have delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and from the yoke of bondage. And He's, he's, he's just giving them a rah-rah sort of, this is my heart for you, this is what I've done for you. Then in verse 7, this is what he says, and I will take you as my own. If you look that up in Strong's Concordance, it's just the word lakha. I will take you as lakha. Now, these are Hebrew people. You didn't have to explain all this to them. They were standing there and they would have, they would have thought, Did God just say lakha to us? Did, did God, does He want to marry us? Is God wanting to take our relationship with Him that far? Doesn't He know we have issues? I mean, these people had issues. I mean, later he had to tell them things like, don't be intimate with your mother. It's a bad plan. Well, duh, right? But he had to tell, that's how much issues they had. Later he had to tell them, don't throw your children in fire. Not a good idea, right? So he had to tell them all these things, but he is instituted. He is initiating a marriage with them. You cannot understand the Ten Commandments outside the context of this, that God loves you so much, He wants to marry you. He wants to marry you. Laka. So, a- after I've said Lakah, what would be the next word she'd be longing to hear? Sagula. And, and you guys know, you guys know how women are, right? I, I don't want the women to turn on me, but here we go, right? Hey, I'm gonna step out there in faith, alright? How long would it be, how long would it be before Laka wore off? Not long. (laughs) Not long. It wouldn't be too long after that, her girlfriends would be saying, has he said Segula yet? Girl, is he scared of commitment? (laughs) He needs to be saying Segula. So one night we're out on a date. And on the way to where we were going, she's hungry. And the noises that are coming out of her stomach... It's something God-awful. It's like a rhino's mating call. And I think to myself, that's the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. A woman whose stomach can make noise like that. It's like a female drummer. There's something awesome about a woman that likes to beat on things. You know what I'm saying? They just. So I take her on the date. We get home, and there's this moment. And I say, Allie, Segula. Now this time she can barely keep her hands off of me because I'm so irresistible. (laughs) She is so excited. So she goes in and she calls her friends. He said Segula to me. He said Segula to me. Oh my God. He said Segula to me. (laughs) Segula means treasured possessions. It takes Laka one step further. And it, that one step further is, I don't just want to make you mine. I want to make you the most important person in my whole life. Treasured possession. Look at Exodus chapter 19. Same group of people. Leading up to the Ten Commandments. They've already heard Laka, and they would have been longing to hear the word Segula. And so, in Exodus 19, verse 5, here's what God says to them. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. It might say special treasure. In Hebrew, it's segula. Segula. So, once again, these people, 430 years That's all they've known is slavery. And they're like, does God want to marry us? Is he serious? Did he just say segula? Now, the next one, the next word she'd be longing to hear is mikvah. Now, mikvah is not as romantic as the first two. The first one's sort of romantic, the second one's really romantic. Like, I want to make you the most important person in my whole life. Women hear that and they go, isn't that something? (laughs) they like that mikvah is far less romantic but it was necessary mikvah was a 3 day warning that uh, the betrothal was coming and mikvah meant this mikvah meant go wash <laughs> like, like like girl you need a bath your breath is stinky mikvah mikvah meant go wash go wash, or if you want to get spiritual with it, you could say consecrate. I don't know how to spell consecrate. There we go. Consecrate. It meant, it it was a three-day warning. And the reason they did it was gracious because you wanted to give them a three-day warning before the betrothal happened so that they could be touched. You wanted to be clean at the proposal so you could be touched. You wanted to be able to touch the person at the betrothal. So you give them a three-day warning, go wash. Um, you see this all over the Bible, but I'll give you the most extreme example in the whole Bible that I know of, and that's Esther. Remember, she, she bathed in perfume for a year before she went in and saw her husband, which I think is a bit overkill. you imagine that? Whoo, girl, where you been? <laughs> but she, but she, you know, she bathed in a year. is mikvah, mikvah. Look at Exodus 19, verse 10. Exodus 19, verse 10. It says this, it says, and, and, and the Lord said to Moses, have the people consecrate themselves for three days and have them wash their clothes. Mikvah, mikvah. In other words, three days from now, a ketubah is coming. A ketubah is coming. And they would have known this. This is Hebrew culture. They would have known this order. So three days from then, Exodus 20 happens Exodus 20 is a ketubah. A ketubah is a marriage contract. It's a marriage contract. Now, let me try to give you this example very quickly in the natural. This is what would happen. Three days after Mikvah, I would, Mikvah, I would come get Allie, and Allie and I would go sit at a table. Normally, it would be her and her father and me and my father, and we would make an agreement a basic boundary sort of list that uh, defined the basic boundaries of our marriage. Um, she could put anything in the ketubah she wanted and I could put anything in the ketubah I wanted so long as we both agreed, okay? Um, now, this is very important because marriage is, is one of those things that, listen, if you're here today and you're thinking about getting married, um, uh, let me give you Paul's advice, don't. Um, <sighs> and what he said, he said, he, said, um, he who marries uh, does not sin, but they're signing up for a life of pain. Mm. Um, so, uh, um, because marriage is one of those things that even between two pretty good-hearted people, uh, it's tough. And and, and, it's not, it, and it's not because, listen, I'm a, I'm a counselor by trade. Anytime two, a man or a woman comes to me and it turns into who's right and who's wrong, it never works. Because typically it's not a matter of right and wrong. Typically it's a matter of just differences. Uh, marriage is, I think marriage might be one of those things that God steps back and goes, what was I thinking? What was I, what was I thinking? I mean, because men and women are just different, okay? Um, they're not wrong. They're just different. Um, I'll give you, let me give you an example. Um, a woman says, I have nothing to wear. What she means is, I have nothing new. That's what she means. And other women understand that code. <laughs> they do. So, so if a woman says to a woman, I have nothing to wear, the other woman says, girl, let's go shopping, right? Right? Yeah, a man says, I have nothing to wear. What he means is, I have nothing clean. Do some laundry, right? That's just, right? <laughs> Not wrong, just different, right? Just, huh? I'll give you another example. Smells, Right? Women like sweet-smelling stuff. They like things like flowers and perfume, oil, candles. They love it. women. Two women can go into a candle shop and sniff wax for an hour. Girl, check that out. Ain't that? That is some sweet-smelling stuff right there. They, they, they just, they could do that stuff. When you give a woman some flowers, the first thing she does is smell it. You give man flowers, he smells 70 bucks. That's all he smells. Right? Women like sweet-smelling stuff they, they, that's in them to do that. Men like stinky stuff. Like, you'll never see two men in a candle shop going, "Check, Hey, Billy, check that new white lilac scent out. Now, that is something special right there. But I'm going to tell you, that is some sweet-smelling stuff. You'll never see men do that. Never. Men like stinky stuff, though. You, you, have, you have a man, and he plays a rugby match in the rain, And there's blood, and there's mud, and there's sweat all mixed together on his shirt. Blood, mud, and sweat all mixed together. And he's got to get to a business meeting really quick after it. So he he runs into the locker room, and he showers, and he puts nice clothes on. He takes all those muddy, sweaty, nasty clothes, and he puts them in a plastic bag, and he ties it off and puts it in the boot of his car. Three months later, (laughs) he's looking for something in the boot of his car, and he sees that bag, and he remembers what's in it what's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to open it, and he's going to smell it. That's men. And if there's any other man around, he'll say, hey, man, check that out. That's ripe right there. Now I'm going to tell you. And so men everywhere owe each other courtesy sniffs. Right? Because if I smell smell Hamish's dirty clothes, and then later if I have something, he's got to smell mine because I smelled his, and it's just that. That's all it is. That's why if you're ever going down this road and at a red light you see four guys in a car and three of them have their head out the window and one of them's in the back seat laughing, it, it's just somebody cashing in on his courtesy sniff. That's all that is. Because men like stinky stuff. There's nothing funnier to a group of men than something stinky happening. That's, that's us. All right? Women like sweet smelling stuff. Not wrong, just different. And so, and so to curb, to, to try to increase the effectiveness of marriage, what we would do is we would sit down and we would talk about our basic boundaries before we got married. And that became our marriage contract. She could put anything in there she wanted, and I could put anything in there I wanted, so long as we both agree. Because so, how can two walk together lest they be agreed? And then once that was agreed on, that became the rules of our marriage, and so if after marriage, if one of us broke our deal, this is what it was called, marital unfaithfulness. It was called marital unfaithfulness. And, and you would go through a four-step process to prove it, one-on-one, two-on-one, spiritual leaders-on-one, and then discipline. And if, and, and that, was, that became the ruling force of our marriage was this marriage contract. After it was agreed upon, we would sign it, and check this out, you're going to love this. The whole Bible is about a wedding. After we, it was agreed upon, we would sign it, and then we would stand and face each other. And this is what I would say to her. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And she would say, well, when will you come back to receive me unto yourself? And I would say, I do not know the day or the hour, but when my father approves the wedding chamber, he'll send me back to receive you unto myself. So when Jesus is saying this stuff, everybody's there going, does God still want to marry us? This is unbelievable. So we would have this marriage contract. And I want you to think about the Ten Commandments in terms of a marriage contract now. Think about it. You should have no other gods before me. In other words, if we're going to be married, I've got to be the most important person in your life. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Even if God, even if, let's take God out of it for a second. For marriage to work, the husband has got to be the most important person to the wife. And the wife has to be the treasured possession of the husband, right? It's the only way for it to work, all right? All right, um, don't make idols. In other words, if we're going to be married, you can't carry pictures of your old boyfriends around. (laughs) Because that's going to hurt my feelings. Not going to do that, all right? Um, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, In other words, if we're going to be married, one day in seven is going to be just me and you. One day in seven. As a matter of fact, this is how God, this is what God did, this is what God did to keep his marriage together. God said one day in seven and seven times a year, we're going to leave everything and just be together. One day in seven and seven times a year, we're going to leave everything and just be together. God did everything he could do to make his marriage with the nation of Israel work but it just didn't. In the book of Ezra and in the book of Jeremiah, it says this, God had to divorce Israel because of their continual marital unfaithfulness. In other words, they kept breaking their deal. He had to divorce them for their continual marital unfaithfulness. Maybe, just maybe. And listen, if you're here tonight and you've been through a divorce, maybe this is for you. There's a scripture that says, I hate divorce. And we teach that as if God hates divorced people. Maybe God's not saying I hate divorce as a matter of judgment. Maybe he's saying as a matter of understanding, I've been through it. I know. It stinks. And I hate it for you. And I hate it for the other person. And I hate it for all the tears it's going to cause. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Maybe that's what it was about. Maybe it's not what we made it. Maybe, maybe, because if God hates divorced people, then he hates himself. Because in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Ezra, it says he had to divorce Israel because of their marital unfaithfulness. And who did he marry? You, me. We're the bride of Christ. Hmm. God hates it. This was all about a marriage. So this is what would happen I would go and prepare a place for her, a marriage chamber. And then I'd come back and get her, and we'd have a wedding. At a wedding, there was step five, hoopah. Hoopah means under the presence. Under the presence. I forgot to bring mine. Um, When I was here last, I, I did a message on the tassels on the garments. Oh, you remember that? Okay, good. That's very good. I'm glad I'm not going to do that this time because you would all remember it. Okay, so, because um, I know this, that's, that educational scientists tell me if I can get your imagination, you'll remember it. Well, remember the prayer shawl that there was two hoopas. The first hoopah was the marriage altar, okay? And, and, and we still have those today. When, when, when you, you, you see people get married under archways. You see that? So they get married under archways. That, that, was, that was the first hoopah. was a marriage altar that, that talked about when you get married, you're doing so under the presence of God under the presence of God. The second hoopah was in the marriage chamber. And what they would do is they would take bedposts. They would take the bedposts and extend them up. And they would take the tassels, and they would tie the tassels around the four corners of the bed, and it made the prayer shawl a canopy over the bed. They thought of the prayer shawl as the presence of God, as the presence of God. So this is what would happen. Me and my new wife would get married, under the hoopah, Then they would march us to the door of the wedding chamber, and I would pick her up to carry her into the... Do you guys do that in New Zealand? Where you pick... It's a good idea for some, not so good for others, but <laughs> I mean, you know, some people ought to hold off on that tradition, okay? But they'd, they'd, they'd pick them up and carry him under under the, the, the threshold there, and that's where we get the word rapture from. The word rapture simply means to pick your bride up. It means to pick her up, to carry her into the place you prepared for her. It's all about a wedding. Okay, So, so I would take her then into, into, the, uh, into the wedding chamber, and they had tied the hoopah over the bed. They would shut the door behind us, and we would go in and consummate our marriage under the hoopah. Under the hoopah, So the consummation of the marriage would happen under the presence of God. They would wait outside for us to be done. <laughs> They'd wait outside for us to be done. They were way more open with their sexuality than we are. We're very closed with it. They were very open with it. Um, so they would wait outside for us to be done. And then we'd come out and we'd have a party. That was hoopah. So this was the five steps of the wedding program. Now, this is the Ten Commandments, which I'm going to get into way more in the next session. But the Ten Commandments was not ten proofs that God would love you. It wasn't ten conditions for God to love you. It wasn't you do this and I'll love you. No, 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 no. The Ten Commandments was ten proofs he already did. It was God's attempt to make us free. God's attempt to make us free. He says, he opens the Ten Commandments this way, I am the Lord your God. And we're going to talk about that phrase in the next session. I am the Lord your God. In other words, before they did anything right or anything wrong, he said, I am the Lord your God. He said, La Cata them before. Anything right or anything wrong. This is not about God making a group of people good. It's about God making a group of people free. Now I want you to look. we we'll close this first session out. I want you to look. At the end of the Ten Commandments. And I want you to see hoopa. Exodus 20, 18. Exodus 20, verse 18. It says this. And people at the, the people were at the base of the mountain. It says this. And the people saw the thunder and the lightning and the billows of smoke. And they heard the sound of a trumpet. So they see three things. They see thunder, they see lightning, they see billows of smoke, and they hear one thing the sound of blowing wind, the sound of a trumpet. Now, if you picture this in terms of Laka, Segula, Mikvah Katuba, Hoopa, these people, the ketubah has just been given, and they look up, and the whole mountain covers them in smoke. Hoopa. And it says they look up and they see thunder and they see lightning how do you see thunder? No way. Can't see thunder. I looked that word up in Strong's Concordance, and in Strong's Concordance, it says that that word is kole, K-O-L-E, kole. In every other place in the Bible, it's translated voices or languages. It's the same word when Moses heard the voice out of the burning bush, kole. So they look up and they see voices or languages and they say, it says they see thunder and lightning. The word lightning is the word glorified fire. It's the same word for fire out of the burning bush. So I want you to get the picture. The, the ketubah has just been handed down. They, they're standing there, and the whole mountain covers them in a hoopah. And they look up, and they see languages inside fire. What would the languages have been saying? Will you marry me? Will you marry me? The Talmud, which is the ancient rabbinical commentary on this, says this, that on this day in history, that God proposed, uses the word proposed, God proposed to the whole world using 70,000 tongues of fire. You want to hear something cool? In um, 1857 in Rangoon, Burma, an English sociologist went there. This is before electricity, any of that. And he's studying this group of tribal people and he shows up and he says, I have one question, who is your God? And these tribal people in Rangoon, Burma in 1857 said this, We serve a God named Yah who proposed to us from fire in the sky. 70,000 tongues of fire. But the Israelites got scared and they stepped back and they said, Moses, don't have God speak to us anymore lest we die. You go figure out what God wants, and then you tell us what God wants. But don't have God speak to us anymore lest we die. So God says, well, they didn't want to accept because they felt unworthy. God marries them anyway. But he institutes a feast every year. Every year, on the the anniversary of this day, by law, they had to celebrate a feast. It's found in Leviticus 23. You can look it up later. And it's called the Feast of Pentecost. Every year on this day, as a celebration of their anniversary, they have a feast called Pentecost. It's coming up in two weeks. They have a feast called Pentecost. And at the Feast of Pentecost, everybody had to bring leavened loaves, they had to bring leavened loaves of bread. It's the only place in the whole Bible that they were commanded to bring loaves made with yeast. Everywhere else is unleavened bread. There, leavened bread. So they're bringing these leavened loaves. And this is what would happen. They would give it to the priest. The priest would wave it before God. And this is what he would say. I thank you, my God, that your unleavened life is willing to become one with our leavened life. Isn't that the truth? That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sometimes we make God look bad. Sometimes we're the ones that make God look bad. But God is so humble, he wants to be in us anyway. And the priest would bring the leavened loaves down, he would break it in half, and he'd fill the leavened loaves with oil, signifying, obviously, the Holy Spirit. When he was done with that, he would say, now the day of Pentecost has fully come. So one day, years later, they're all in the upper room. And they'd have been celebrating this day because they had to. And the priest would have raised 11 loaves, and he would have filled the 11 loaves with oil. And he said, now the day of Pentecost has fully come. This time, they're in the upper room, and the exact same thing that happened on the exact same day years before happens. They're standing in the upper room, and the whole place covers them in smoke. Hoopa. And they hear the sound of a trumpet. And they look up, and they see tongues inside fire. Same exact thing that happened in Mount Sinai, same day, anniversary of that same day. The only difference is this time they spoke back, which is the birth of the church, which is the bride of Christ. If you want to understand your walk with God and you want to have some cornerstones to your success and you want to understand the Ten Commandments, you cannot understand the Ten Commandments outside of this axiom that God wants to marry you leaven and all. Pentecostals for years have said, you got to get the leaven out of your life for God to use you. you got to get the leaven out of your life for God to use you. And should you get the leaven out of your life? Absolutely. It's because it's the best life to get the leaven out of your life. But that is pointless as to how much God feels about you. God wants to marry you leaven and all. The whole point of Pentecost is oil flows through leaven. And aren't you glad? And aren't I glad that God uses leavened beings That the whole point of the Ten Commandments is God wanting an intimate relationship with a group of people who are slaves to something. What are you slave to? What's your slave driver? If God touched your life tonight, what would be gone tomorrow? What would it be? What's your slave driver? It's about me and it's about you, and it's, it's about God's determination to marry a group of people with heavy-duty issues and make it work. It's about God teaching me and teaching you what it's like to have our dignity back. It's about God teaching me and God teaching you what it's like, what it's like for our opinion to matter, our image to be restored, what it's like to have dignity. I bless you tonight to know that God wants to marry you, leaven and all. That no matter what you've done or where you've been, God is determined to make it right for you. And that is what the Ten Commandments is all about. We're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to start exploring with the first command. It's actually the first line of the first command. We're going to explore those three words there. So I'll turn this back over to Doug now. Thank you for that. I hope you were blessed by that very much.